My name is Jim. I'm an alcoholic. I said I had to drive back sometime tonight. That means I could talk for hours. <laughs> but I won't. I'm privileged and honored to be here at this wonderful event. A nice, warm feeling. Um, my friend Tom and I drove up on, on a lovely day. And, uh, and this, is, this is Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, this is what it's all about. It's not, it's not really all about a speaker standing up at a podium as much as it is about the people who took the time and the effort and the opportunity to create an event that everybody has something to do with. You know, we were talking about when it's all over and you're driving home tonight and you know you were here and you know you put effort into this thing and you have that special feeling, you know, that special feeling I'm talking about that you you get to after you talk to a newcomer or, or after you've been a part of something that really made you feel like you're a part of life and a part of Alcoholics Anonymous. There's nothing like that. and Money can't buy that. And I, and I really believe that that's what these events are about. Um, you know, I think that this is not the Knights of Columbus. This is Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe that Many of us come from different places and have different problems, but have the same solutions. I believe that many of us spend our lives pole vaulting over mouse turds. Okay? I really do. And, and, and I believe I'm one of those people that occasionally does that. I also believe there's people sitting out in the audience, probably, that maybe feel like things aren't going to be okay. Again, it's not the Knights of Columbus. Alcoholics Anonymous is comprised of people who are not necessarily always feeling wonderful about the bluebirds of happiness, okay? <laughs> Flying into their window every morning as I pull out the 410 shotgun and blow them out of the air. Everybody has their days, you know? And so I think that the process of recovery for me in my life, at least, is not about, it's not about always feeling good. I also was confused in the early sobriety about what enthusiasm was. I thought, you know, as I looked around me, and I saw people who actually looked like they were enjoying cleaning coffee pots <laughs> and having just a wonderful time cleaning empty, ash, dirty trays, emptying the garbage, setting up the meetings, super set up, birthday guy, and I looked around and I thought, I mean, this, is, this has got to be BS, man. Nobody, but nobody can enjoy doing that stuff. How can that possibly be fun? And then a little secret was, was told to me. The secret that was told to me was, enthusiasm for recovery is not necessarily liking to do the things that we need to do. Enthusiasm for recovery is not liking them, but doing them anyway. And that hit me. That really did hit me. And you know, as a, as a young kid, and as a 50-yard dash man in a 100-yard race, which I have always been, I've never been a finisher, it was hard for me to understand that. And you know, it was quite frightening as a little kid to realize, as a child, that I didn't fit. To have a feeling of insignificance and insecurity that as a child I could not understand nor explain. 
You know, when I was a kid, I had problems learning. Now they, they you know, I tell this, you know, I, I tell this story, I tell a lot of the stories I tell because some people feel like they're different. And I want you to know that you're probably not. You know, there's a saying that when one door closes, another door always opens, but it's hell in the hallway. You know, before that next door opens. Some of us have felt like we've been in that hallway for a long, long time. And I remember feeling like I was in that hallway even as a little kid. They didn't have names for ADD or ADHD or other learning disabilities when I was little. What they had was a name, and it was, you are special. And you go to school in the special little bus with the other special kids, okay? It didn't take a rocket scientist to look around and realize that they were even a little more special than me, okay? And, and, and I met Sister Mary Edward in my first special class. Sister Mary Edward, people think this is a contrived story sometimes, but it isn't. Sister Mary Edward looked to be about 6'3 and had a beard. She had hair growing under her chin and was the most frightening experience of seeing a human being that I had ever had in my life at my first special class, okay? And Sister Mary Edward taught me a lot of things about good, bad, and purgatory. And I had accumulated thousands upon thousands of years in purgatory prior to ever picking up a drink, okay? Sister Mary Edward had enough of my hair to knit an afghan. Sister Mary Edward and I did not click. And the funny part about it is, I, I don't believe that that disease of perception that I have started just when I drank. I think it started before then. I think I realize today that a lot of the things I think I heard Sister Mary Edwards say, she really didn't say them the way I heard them, okay? Because everything she said that was wrong are things that I relished, okay? It was all the fun stuff. And so when you go through your early life feeling like a square peg in a round hole, you don't feel very good about it. Now, this is my story. Yours is going to be different. But this is how it was for me. Now, I experienced the magic of alcohol long before I ever picked up a drink. I saw the magic of alcohol in my family. I saw it in my father. I smelled it on his breath. And when he had that smell on his breath, he played with us, me and my brother, my two sisters. He acted differently. It was almost like he was a different guy. And then on the nights when he didn't have that smell on his breath, he wasn't the same person. And then after a while, when he did have that smell on his breath again, he began to change. Something was changing in him. He wasn't jovial and fun and happy-go-lucky anymore. He, he couldn't help it. He was what he was. And I started to wonder, what is the power of that smell? What does that do for him or to him? And you know, I anticipated my first drink long before I ever took it. I knew. I sat in the bar with him. He brought me in there when I was a kid. You know about what it says in the big books, the allure of the lights outside and, 
and, and, and the good old boys and girls slapping a few down, pats on the back. My dad took me in there when I was a little kid, and I saw that camaraderie, and I felt kind of cool in there. Those guys paid a lot of attention to me. And so I finally talked to a guy. His name was Jerry Capley. He was one of my heroes. He was, he was a felon, and all my heroes have always been felons. And Jerry finally said he'd get me a couple of bottles. He got me a bottle of MD-2020, a bottle of Muscatel. He took me up on the pool hall roof in Lamont, Illinois, and he was going to teach me a lesson. And I took a drink. I took another pull, and I took another pull, and the magic started to happen. I began to feel bulletproof. I began to feel the way I'd never felt in my life. Instead of four foot six, I was six foot four. That $2.50 in my pocket turned into 250 and I could dance. I could even talk to girls if I really wanted to. And I drank that stuff, and he kept waiting for me to stop. You had enough? You learned your lesson? Uh-uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Bring it on, baby. And I drank it, and I drank it, and, then, and that's my first drunk. I fell off the pool hall roof onto the landing. I was 12 years old, and I cracked my nose. I fell across Stevens Street and cut my cheek. I staggered down Main Street in Lamont, fell up the stairs of my mom and dad's little, uh, little two-bedroom apartment. I fell through the screen door. They instantly knew something was really wrong with me. They saw the blood and they smelled the booze. My mom, who's Italian, was screaming with her hands the way they do. My dad was giving me these in the back of the head. What you? They threw me in the tub. I puked in the tub. There was mayhem, tears, chaos horror in my house, yelling, screaming. They cleaned all the blood off. They got the vomit off of me. They threw me in the bed. I woke up the next day grounded for life. I had my first experience of a hangover. And I went to school and I said to my friends, you guys got to try this. <laughs> you have to try it. Wait till you guys try. I mean, I got a crooked nose, cut cheek, I'm, I'm pale. You guys got to try this. The moral of that story is this. The moral of the story is serious. You see, alcohol, right from the beginning, had the magical properties to alter my perception of reality so significantly that I was immediately able to dismiss any of the chaos and pain that I caused anybody and only focus on what it did for me, how it made me feel, and that's all that mattered. That's all that counted. It says in our book that the center of our disease is self-centeredness. I believe that self-centeredness is based on a sense to fulfill a need that I don't understand, a need that I think I can fulfill from outside of myself and I chased the fulfillment of that need for many many years after that okay drinking and doing everything else I could to numb the pain I don't know where the pain came from and you know what's funny about this it doesn't even matter they've never even told me in Alcoholics Anonymous where the pain came from they just told me what the solution was I tried figuring that out from one psychiatrist to the next, from one priest to the next, to getting married, to going to see ministers, 
I worked my way through dropping out of high school. And I met a girl that I had been dating in high school. And we got married. And I'll tell you, one of the most painful parts about being an alcoholic for me is this. And I'm sure that many of you have experienced this nightmare. Many, many times. I've said things as a drunk that I really didn't mean or care about. Promises that I didn't really mean to make and I never intended on keeping them. But there were those moments when I'd come home after that three-day drunk and I'd fall to my knees in the foyer of our little house and I'd have a rose with me and I was in tears crying my eyes out, begging my wife to please forgive me. And I, and I meant every word of it. I meant it. I meant it. Those tears were real tears. That pain was real pain. That promise was a real promise. And she hugged my head and ran her fingers through my dirty hair. And she said, I forgive you. And I believe you. And the next night I did it again. See, that's, that's the part that, that kills drunks like me. The next night I did it again. If I've ever found one common denominator that alcoholics cannot sustain for any long period of time, the emotion would be guilt. But I meant what I said. And I meant what I said to my ma when I told her, I promise, I promise I won't hurt you again either. Over and over and over and over. And I meant it. I meant it when the phone would ring and I'd be at the bar drunk and my wife would be standing out in front of Marshall Fields in Oakbrook waiting for me to come pick her up at 9.30 at night in an empty parking lot mall. And I'd say, I'll be there, I swear, I'm coming, I'm coming. And I'd hang the phone up and I'd say, give me another one. And I'd sit there consciously saying to myself, what is wrong with me? Why can't I leave here? Not showing up when I was supposed to show up. Never, ever being dependable. Always lying. Always playing the game. Digging myself deeper and deeper into a type of living that I despised, yet I didn't know how to live any other way. Do you remember those lonely Sundays? All your buddies or your girlfriends would be home recuperating or doing normal things. I'd be out driving around on the country roads in my van with a quart of booze between my legs crying. No one was left at the bar. They all had enough sense to call it a day. And I felt like the loneliest human being on the face of the earth. Nothing fills that kind of emptiness. Not from the outside in. And so that woman one day brought home a book. And she threw it down on the table. And the book said, How to Be a Better Wife. I saw that book and I packed my bags up. And I left. I left. I couldn't stand what I was doing to her. I couldn't stand what this alcoholism was doing to her. How to be a better wife after the way I treated that poor woman all those years. I got on an airplane because we had moved to Florida geographical cure. And I flew back. I came back to Illinois. In the meantime, some things that happened has happened in most of our lives that seemed to change our lives forever. 
There's people sitting in this room right now that think there are things that have happened in their lives that they will never get over, particularly if you're new. The only reason I tell this story is to give you a little bit of hope. My little nephew, Tommy, seven years old, didn't want to play Little League Baseball. Now, I was an athletic kind of guy, and I wasn't going to have this kid embarrass me and not play Little League Baseball. So I talked him into playing Little League Baseball, and he still said no, and I, I tried to bribe him and, and browbeat him and shame him, and, and I worked on him for at least a month. And finally, I made him an offer he couldn't refuse. I offered him so much money per hit, so much money per home run. And finally, little Tommy said, okay, Uncle Jim, I'll play. I'll play. And so I went to my sister Beth, and I said, hey, guess who's playing Little League? And she said, do you want to play? And he looked at me, and he said, yes, Mom. Well, he came up to bat. Everybody in my family's all lined up, all proud. First Little League game. Of course, I'm drunk. And the pitcher threw the ball, and the ball hit him in the chest, and he fell down, and his heart stopped, and he died on the field right there and then in front of all of us. Um, you see, one of the lessons I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous, whether I like it or not, whether you're new and you think you're hopeless, whether you're new and you look back with great regret at what's happened in your life, and you know you'll never get over it, let me, let me tell you something. It took every drink I drank. It took every bit of pain I ever had. It took every bad episode I was ever involved in. It took every horrible experience that I have experienced in my life to finally be driven to my knees and have the magic happen. A magic called the bottom. You ever have one of them family meetings? You know, the 2 a.m. kind? Sometime later, I met a girl and began to date her. She lived in Wilmington, Illinois, about 30 miles away from us, and I'd drive down to Wilmington, Illinois, and I'd see a guy picking up cans on the side of the road, living out of his van. He picked up cans and aluminum and garbage, took them in, collected a few pennies so he could get his next bottle. I looked at that guy, and I said to myself, he has got it made. You know why I felt like he had it made? Because he had no conflict. He looked like he didn't care. And maybe he didn't. The conflict was gone. He was what he was. That's all that he was, as Pop, I would say. Well, about 2 a.m. that morning, I went home, had a family meeting. My sister was in from Arizona. My brother was in from New Mexico. My other sister was home. Went up to my mom and dad's little two-bedroom apartment that they still lived in. And I said, you know, I'm either going to die this weekend or I might get help. My brother is a tofu-eating, meditating, don't-step-on-bugs kind of guy <laughs> who would sing, if I had a hammer. He was that kind of guy. <laughs> Studying psychology, psychologist, one of the most loving guys you'd ever want to meet in your life. And I said I might die, but I might get well. He dove over the table and started choking me to death. Dove over with these eyes of a demon. And as he's choking me to death, he screams, but you don't have to die. And I'm going, ah, 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 you know, I'm <laughs> okay. I charged out of that house. I got back in that van and I headed back down to Wilmington, Illinois, where it was either 
all or nothing. I did it all that night from Russian roulette to shooting scotch in my veins with a syringe. The girl that I had been dating and her mother at about 2 o'clock in the morning found me in my van in the parking lot in Wilmington, Illinois with the 38 in my lap and the bottle at my feet. And I don't know if you ever had a moment of clarity. I think a lot of us may have. They were looking through that van window at me. And I came to and I looked out that van window at them and I had a stark raving moment of clarity. For that moment, and I don't know how and I don't know why, I was stone sober. And I'll tell you what they looked at me like. That's the best way I can explain how they looked at me. They looked at me the way you look at a deer that's been hit by a car, that's laying in the middle of the road and it's not quite dead, and you know that the best thing you can do for it is put it out of its misery. That's how they looked at me. That's just exactly how they looked at me. And for some reason, something clicked. It was as if, for that moment, a window opened. Maybe it was a combination of ruining that girl's life and watching that little nephew of mine die and breaking the hearts of my parents. Who knows how many nights they laid in bed and cried for me. The self-hatred and disgust that I had in my life towards me. Maybe it was a combination of a million things, but I'll guarantee you one thing. I know it was the love and prayers of a loving mother, brother, father, sister. I know that. Because that window opened in that moment and I finally saw what I became. The entire time that they lived in that two-bedroom apartment upstairs, downstairs, immediately downstairs from them, lived a guy who was four years sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. His name was Urban the Undertaker. And Urban either saw a customer in me or he saw someone who may one day recover. <laughs> and, he, and he used to eye me up and I mean, my, my eyes would be bleeding, you know. I'd be so sick and hungover. And Urban was the kind of guy that loved beautifying the world. He'd be planting flowers around this old building. And he'd slap me on the back with that big smile on his face and I'd be just all hungover and sick and bruised. And he'd say, how you doing, Jim? <laughs> I wanted to kill Urban so many days. <laughs> I really did. And so, you know, it's like the denial mechanism kicks in. We have that moment of clarity where, where we surrender, but we, we immediately want to take it back as soon as we feel a little bit better. It's like, it's like the, the, the angle shooting that I do in my head. It's like the counselor and the alcoholic and, and, the, and, the, and the, the counselor says to the alcoholic in rehab he's, he's got a glass of whiskey a glass of water and a worm and he says now watch Jimmy and he, wa he drops the worm into the water and the, and the worm wiggles around with no ill effects and he said see see now now watch this he takes it out and watch this Jimmy and he drops it in the whiskey and the worm dies instantly and he says now what does that tell you Jimmy and Jimmy says it tells me if I don't want to get worms, I've got to drink more whiskey. That's what it tells me. <clears throat> That's the kind of angle shooting I do. That's the kind of angle shooting I do. That's how I process information. I am the king of justification. It's never me. It's always you. There's nothing wrong with me. 
If it wasn't for this, 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 her, them, that job, that, I'd be fine. I remember looking out the window of that little house my wife and I lived in, and I'd see the guy across the street with his two little kids playing on the lawn on a Sunday morning after church, and I would think, what did he do to deserve such a horrible fate? I thought he was the one in prison. Well, I called Urban. I called him and I said, I need help. And you know what? I meant it. And Urban took me to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the magic happened. Some people didn't get anything out of their first meeting. They don't remember their first meeting. They felt nothing at their first meeting. My story is my story. I had been a guy dying to be loved, but had a stay away sign on him. It's like a kid who's mad at you and keeps pushing you away, but the child really wants you to hug him. Okay? I, I, I wanted so desperately to have that emptiness filled and to be loved. I wanted it so desperately. I wanted so desperately to feel like a part of the world. I wanted the loneliness to go away because the most painful part of my existence was loneliness. Even around a group of people that loved me, I couldn't feel anything but loneliness at the end. And I went to my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And you know what happened? I went in dirty, ugly, teeth missing, REO Speedwagon t-shirt on, cut off at the sleeves, long, dirty hair, and people came up and began to shake my hand, put their arms around me, and tell me that if they can do it, I can do it. That meeting was called the Lamont Oaks Group, and there was about 80 people there. And for the first time, I felt something that I hadn't felt in a long time. Hope. I felt hope. I mean, really felt hope. I felt hope so much that I had to go in the bathroom and cry because I couldn't cry in front of other people. Now that night, my folks allowed me back into their apartment because I called Alcoholics Anonymous, and another very powerful experience happened to me. I went upstairs, and I opened the door, and my mom was standing there. My mom looks like an Italian angel. She's about this high, and she's got big brown Italian eyes, and she's the most loving, wonderful person I've ever known in my life. And I walked up to my ma and I said, Ma, I don't think I ever have to drink again. And my ma's eyes filled with tears and she said to me, Son, I don't think you ever have to drink again either. She said, But I want to tell you something. You'll never know the depths of love I have for you until your heart beats outside of your body. Right over my head. I didn't know what she meant. What she meant was, You'll never know how much a parent loves a child. You'll never know the depths of love I have for you until you have your own child. And then she got this evil look in her eye. <laughs> and she said, Take care of my heart. Don't you break my heart again. And then the journey began. The magic happened. My window opened. It was now up to me to jump through it. I met my sponsor, Paulie Kay. He's still my sponsor today, and he took me on the journey of the most important mission of my life. Not just the meetings, not just the 
events or the home group, but the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was made very clear to me that without taking those 12 steps, I will have no recovery in my life. He said, it's, a guy named Frank M. says, it's like, it's like going to the hospital but not getting the operation. What's the point? Okay? And in the process of taking those 12 steps, something will happen to me. See, what I had to come to understand was I don't have the power. It's the ant on the log story. The 3,000-pound tree falls into the river. It's a huge oak. And the river has a current, and it bends and it winds, and the tree follows the, the current of the river just by nature's own course. But there's an ant on the log, and every time the log takes a bend in the river, the ant does this. because the ant thinks he's steering the log. <clears throat> the ant really believes that he's in control of that log. My sponsor told me that what you're going to come to understand is a whole new definition of powerlessness and a whole new reliance on a power greater than yourself. And the only pathway that can be opened is by these 12 steps for you. If you are not willing to take these 12 steps, you probably will not stay sober. And the journey began in those 12 steps. And I was stubborn. See, again, I process information differently. When he said to me, I want you on your knees every morning and every night, it came in this year, got stuck in here, and it said, if you're not too tired and if you don't forget, and then it came out here. Okay? I want you going to a meeting five to seven times a week. It came in, got stuck here. If Hogan's Heroes isn't on and I don't have anything better to do, and then it comes out here. <laughs> See, you know, when a, when a guy gets out of college, which I would never know anything about, and goes on to graduate school, that individual knows he doesn't know or she doesn't know. They're in for a whole new learning experience. But it's funny, me, the newcomer in Alcoholics Anonymous, I come in two weeks later, I can tell you how to work your program in a heartbeat. That fast. I can have a sponsor say, look, I think we better sit down and have a talk, and I can say to myself, well, I'll have to think about that. Let me consider it, and I'll get back to you. See, because I take my life back into my own hands as a force of habit. It's, it's a natural thing for me to do. I've done it my whole life. That's why my life ended up in the sewer. <laughs> it was time to give it up. It was time to come to realize that I'm not steering the log. It happened to me in Technicolor in a race. My sponsor was a runner. I haven't told this story in a while. My sponsor was a jogger. And I loved this guy right from the beginning. And I wanted to hang out with him and be like best friends and stuff. Well, so I'd just show up at his door. I would just show up. I didn't have a job. I had nothing better to do. <laughs> so uh, I had these socks, these black socks pulled up to my knees. Because I didn't know what runners were either. And I had black tops, you know, high top tennis shoes and a Dago tee with my marbles in the sleeve. And I'd want to run. I'm going to run with Paul Lee. A towel around my neck like the Energizer man, you know. I, 
So finally he, he remitted, he said, we'll run together, and we started running. You know, my training was I'd run from Fricker's Fruit Stand a quarter mile to 127th Street, throw up, have a Marlboro, run back to the truck, and go home. <laughs> finally he said, Jim, we're going to run our first race. I'm going to run a 10K, you're going to run a 5K. Well, right away there, you know, there you go, putting me in the lower end of the deal. Okay. You know, you're better than me, you can run longer than me. You know, I've been, been running four weeks now, and, I, and I, cut down to, I cut down to three packs a day, and all of a sudden, you're a star. So, and he says to me, you're never going to win this race, Jim. Just finish. It's 3.1 miles. Just finish the race. You're never going to win. The whole time, I'm going like this, and I'm thinking, well, you just watch me, Daddy-o. See, I didn't know you couldn't sprint three miles. I had no idea. <laughs> There's... Fat people, skinny people, old people, young people. There's a pregnant woman, seven, eight months pregnant. I thought there ought to be a law. What is that? Okay, the gun goes off. I take off like a bat out of hell. I'm just going. I'm in first place, you know, for the first 30 seconds because no one else is sprinting. And finally, some people start passing me up, and I hear the footsteps, and I'm thinking, okay, the top 20, being the top 20. I start getting a stitch in my side, and I start crumbling up a little bit. Top 50%, just being attained. And then finally, man, you know, now I'm starting to feel nauseous and I'm getting into the, like the second and a half, two and a half miles. I'm starting to sweat and get dizzy. I'm thinking, oh my God, just don't come in last. And then I'm going on and on. Finally, there's one set of footprints behind me. I hear this one set, you know, and I'm running like, like running in place almost with my head back. <clears throat> and I said, just don't let it be last place. The pregnant woman passed me up. I sat down by the tree, puked, and I swear to you, I said to myself, I'm going to start listening to what this man has to tell me. <clears throat> and I did. <clears throat> and he took me on that journey. He told me there would be mouse turds in life to pole vault over. He told me there's going to be times you think there's boogeymen out there. He said, life's not going to be a flat line. I mean, I'm one of the few guys, when he, when he told me to start meditating... I'd close my eyes and get aroused. I'd, I'd see things I wasn't supposed to see. <clears throat> I'd call him up. I'd say, Paulie, I, I got done, and now I'm real aroused. And he finally went after about the tenth time of that. He said, stop meditating. Don't do that. <laughs> so I didn't. I stopped meditating for a while. You know, and, 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 and I, and I, but I started trying to do the stuff that, that he was telling me to do, stuff that didn't make any sense to me. It made no sense. Everything was contrary to my nature that Alcoholics Anonymous wanted me to do. It was senseless. What does this have to do with not drinking? And then he said, it's not about not drinking. That's a symptom of your illness. The steps are what clear up, clean up, and keep away the wreckage of the past. Okay? And I've had episodes along that road, good ones and bad ones. Yeah, I remember I bought my first house. I was four years sober. I, you ever go through the if-onlys, particularly you newer folks? You know, we come here sometimes with no money, no job, nowhere to live, no nothing, but debt. You know, and I went to, I'm sitting downstairs at the Friday night meeting in Lockport, and I'm on the couch with my head down in my hand. I forgot how long I was sober. Paul, he says, what's the matter? I said, I wish I had a car. Red sports car. 
It'd be nice if I had a blonde to put in it, too. And a job. It'd be awful nice if I could take that blonde somewhere other than my mom and dad's house, too. About three or four years go by, I'm sitting down in that same basement with my head in my hands, and he says, what's wrong? I said, hey, if you had that car payment, that girlfriend, that house payment, you'd be miserable, too. Every single thing that I thought would bring me happiness, I acquired and never found happiness in that regard. Let me tell you what I found happiness in. My first Christmas sober, I had no money. And the guy said to me, I'll pay you $400 to paint the inside of my house. Now, it's almost Christmas. My mom and dad don't have a lot of money, okay? They still live in that little two-bedroom apartment. Their dining room table is a card table with four card chairs. I say to myself, I'll take that job. So this guy gave me the honor of painting his 3,000-square-foot house for $400. (laughs) And I did. And I painted that house, and I got that $300. You know what I did with it? I went out and I bought my mom and dad a a cheap $300 dining room set. And I took it to my sister's house, and I put it together. And I put it together wrong. The screws were sticking up out of the Formica instead of down. So, like, if you leaned on it, your elbow would be impaled. But, you know, I fixed it, made it right. And and my brother was in again from college because my van was broken down, and my sister lived in a different town, so I put it together at her house so my mom wouldn't see it. And then I, I, I strapped it to the top of my brother's sports car, okay? So I had this table and all these chairs strapped to the top of my brother's sports car because I want to bring it home and surprise my mom and my dad with this gift. And I worked my butt off for that gift. And I'm going through Lamont, and there's the Mars lights. There they are again. Oh, geez, there's the cops pulling me over. John Herbert, who knew me intimately from... All my arrests got out and said, Jim, I thought you quit drinking. (laughs) I said, I did, I did, John. I swear to God I quit drinking. And, of course, he comes back with a smart-ass comment like, oh, so you took up stealing? (laughs) I said, no. I earned the money to buy this for my mom and dad. So I got it to my mom and dad's apartment, and I snuck it up the stairs. And I put the little chairs there and the table there, and I took the card table out. And my mom must have been awake the whole time listening. And my brother was back from college sleeping in the other bedroom, double beds. And I went into the other bed, and I waited to listen. And I laid there on Christmas Eve listening, my first sober Christmas Eve. And I heard my mom come out of her bedroom. And then I heard her start to cry. And she started crying and crying. And I laid in bed, and I started crying. The reason that she was crying was because she knew her son might not have to die. And the reason I was crying was because I found out finally what it feels like to give instead of take. And that was one of the most powerful moments of my sobriety. I never forgot it. You know what I said to myself? I want to know what it feels like to have this all the time. That's what it meant about getting out of self. That's what Paulie was talking about. This feeling is unbelievable. Unbelievable. I'm free from bondage of self when I feel like that. Those promises come true when I feel like that. 
Isn't it amazing all Alcoholics Anonymous asks me to do are simple little things. And the world is at my feet from the inside out, not from the outside in. That God heals those wounds I thought could never be healed. That internal changes so profound occur that I don't have to run away from life anymore to stand it. That one day when I'm kneeling down at my bedside, one day I actually believe something's here in my prayers. I'm really not that sure what it is, but I know something's here in my prayers. And we continued on the journey of those 12 steps. In the ninth step, my father and I had this negative electricity all our lives. He's alcoholic. And for the first time in my life, I went up to him, apologized to him, and I hugged him. And I, for the first time ever, the words, I love you, were uttered between us. That's the power of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was a guy who was never going to have kids because I didn't think anyone would have me. And I didn't think that I could be a father. I met a wonderful girl and I ended up getting married to her. I ended up being a father. She got pregnant with our first child. And of course, being a manly man, I knew it was going to be a boy, so we didn't need one of them x-ray dealies they do to find out what it is. (laughs) And so my wife's in the hospital and the moment has come and she's pushing and she's pushing and the baby's coming out and this boy is coming out and finally the baby comes out and I say, Doctor, this boy has no penis. (laughs) And it was... Nobody thought that was funny, including the wife or the doctor. (laughs) And my first little girl was born. Her name is Megan, and she's seven years old. The light of my life. Then Jacob, four years old. Then a year ago this month, her little Rachel was born. And I'm 48. And life's just starting. I'm just scratching the tip of the iceberg here. You know, when you can go to bed every night, every night, I tuck my children in and I look at them and I kiss them and I hold them and I realize that I'm the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Every day, no matter how bad the day is, I come home to those children and they wipe away the whole day. There's nights I look at them and I just cry because I can't believe the miracle happened to a guy like me, a street bum, a guy who lived in the streets and ate out of garbage cans. Life happens, you know. It's not a flat line. There's ups, there's downs in all our lives. There's highs, there's lows in all our lives. But I know this. If I do what Alcoholics Anonymous tells me to do, And that connection between me and that power stays open. I may not always feel his presence, but I continue to seek his presence. I will always have moments like that. I will will not take things for granted. My biggest fear is getting so wrapped up in life, making money, being a success, that I miss the movie. You know the movie. That beautiful sunset the first steps that my daughter takes, the first words that my son says. I never want to miss the gifts Alcoholics Anonymous has given me. The beauty of watching the first person you sponsor get their one-year coin and knowing that you had something to do with that. Feeling that presence at two in the morning, sitting with that girl, that guy, 
knowing that you participated in them feeling loved. That when the hand of Alcoholics Anonymous is to be grabbed, that mine is the one that's out there. Because if it ain't up to me, then who's it up to? It is up to me. And you know the other thing? I'll end with this. My folks are getting old now. My dad has Alzheimer's. And my mom lives alone, and she's 83. And what a wonderful gift this is. I've been taking care of her and her house and painting and odds and ends. And she says, Jimmy, I don't know how to repay you. And you know what hit me? It hit me, and these words came out of my mouth to my mom. I said, Mom, you know what's really amazing about AA? It's made me realize that it's an honor and a privilege to be able to serve you. It's not an honor and a privilege to have me serving you. It's an honor and a privilege for me to serve you. Please don't take that opportunity away from me. And what a great way to feel about life. Now, if I could only feel that way about my children all the time, I'd have it made. <laughs> okay? So if you're new, look. You're talking to a guy that at four years sober went charging out his front room door after two drunks fighting in front of his house in his underwear. And as I'm running down the street after these two guys, I see the police car coming, so I dive in the bushes. <laughs> four years sober, in the bushes in my underwear, wondering what the guys I sponsor would think of me now. <laughs> so I didn't say that I was well. I didn't say that I always feel good. But I never give up. Because the next door in the hallway does open. It always will, as long as I walk hand in hand with you and hand in hand with my God. Thanks a lot.